worldwide, the, the like market penetration of luxury wristwatches is still pretty small. Like there's nothing but room for growth here. And if this is going to survive into the 21st century in a, in a real meaningful way, this can't be a brand A versus brand B every minute of every day situation. Like 21st century consumers expect more than that and are too smart for that. And uh, I'm hoping the industry can kind of like pull together and find a new a new way forward for everybody that is better for everyone. Hey, everybody. I'm your host, Stephen Pulverant, and this is Hodinky Radio. 2020, uh, it's uh, it's been a doozy of a year, to say the least. And it feels really weird to say that this year has been good in any meaningful way. But to wrap things up for 2020, we decided to try to find the bright spots and to celebrate them a little bit. So with that in mind, we've got two segments for you this week. The first is James, Danny, and me picking our favorite watches of the year. And rather than go with the usual best chronograph, best dress watch categories, we've decided to break 2020 down month by month, selecting our favorite drops from each. Considering there was a period of time in March and April where we genuinely didn't know if we'd get any new watches at all this year, the final crop is pretty outstanding. At the end, we'll each crown our favorite watch of the year overall, so you'll definitely want to stick around for that. After that conversation, we're going to zoom out a little bit, and I sit down with Jack, John, and Cole to get a macro look at what the lasting effects of 2020 will be on the watch world, specifically with things like the trade shows and product releases. Uh, The way that the watch industry has functioned for about 100 years now was completely disrupted, and it was really great to get some insights from these guys like Jack and John, who have been around a long time, and Cole, who's coming to this a little bit fresh to see maybe what worked, what didn't work, and what we're going to see in the future. So we're going to be taking off the first week in January. So this extra long episode is going to have to hold you over till then. But I want to personally wish every one of you listening a happy new year and tell you, I can't wait to show you what we've got in store for you on Houdinki Radio in 2021. It's going to be pretty major. So without further ado, for the last time in 2020, let's do this. This week's episode is presented by Grand Seiko and the GS9 Club USA chapter, the brand's exclusive community for avid Grand Seiko collectors. Stay tuned later in the show for details or visit GrandSeikoGS9Club.com for more. Hey guys, how you doing? Doing well. The snow is coming. Yeah, no complaints. We got a bit here. Yeah, you guys you guys got blizzard uh, blizzard situation, don't you? I'm a little bit further north. We have a little bit of snow from last night, but it, I don't think there's a blizzard coming for us just yet. I don't really check the weather anymore because I don't go outside. So <laughs> well, I, I live in a, a post-weather lifestyle. <laughs> like a true Canadian, right, James? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I'm not going to spin my computer around and show you the palm tree out the window right now, but uh, <laughs> you can you can send me mean DMs afterwards. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh all right, we're closing out 2020. I think the three of us all agree uh, this year felt like 12 years um, minimum. So uh, I thought instead of doing like a normal year in review, like favorite chronograph of the year, favorite dress watch of the year, whatever, um, 
since each month of this year felt like its own year, I thought we would just go month by month and kind of break the year down in watches. Does that uh, that work for you guys? Love it. Yeah, for sure. It was, I mean, uh, not a great year, all things told, but really not a bad year for watches. Yeah, I totally agree. I like, I kind of forgot how good a year it was for watches quietly. I think because everything felt so spaced out, like when I was prepping for this, there was stuff that came out in January, February that if you had asked me, I would have told you came out in like 2018. There were some crazy months too, like months that felt a lot longer than other months where like more watches than I could have imagined were released in those singular months. Freaking April. April. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, April. April. Yeah. Yeah. April was, uh, April was a marathon. Figured out April. <laughs> that was also thinking about what else was going on in the world in April. And we were like trying to sort out new watch stories. Uh, I, it all kind of feels like a fever dream at this point to me, if I'm being honest. Yeah, for sure. Thankfully, we have a record. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, all right, let's let's jump into this because we got 12 months. It's a lot of watches to get through. Um, I figure basically what we'll do is is we each prepped kind of our own lists. I figure we'll share it month by month. We can debate it, bring up any honorable mentions, whatever, move on. And then at the end, I'm going to ask each of you to crown your kind of like your watch of the year. If there was one watch you wanted on your wrist, uh, you know, when the clock strikes midnight on the 31st, like let's, let's pick those watches. Let's, uh, let's jump in here. January, 2020, approximately seven years ago. Uh, I'll, I'll go first right off the bat here. Uh, this one was kind of a no brainer for me, despite there being some good January watches. Uh, I went with the caliber 321 Speedmaster from Omega. Um, okay. I mean, you drop a new 321 speedy. It's the watch everybody's wanted for decades. I, I don't know. It felt like a no-brainer. James, what did you uh, what did you have up? Uh, the the Chinese edition full titanium Royal Oak QP. Mm. Such a quiet watch that, of course, we haven't seen. We would, I'm not sure we would have seen it even if March didn't happen and the world didn't shut down or whatever. But like, just because it is a boutique edition for for a single market, but it's also a modern Royal Oak QP that's like the sportiest version they've ever made. It's full titanium. It has red accents. It's got like a dark gray. Uh, full tapestry dial. Uh, I think this thing is crazy cool. That's a great choice. Honestly, I, I it hadn't occurred to me because I kind of like stopped at Speedmaster, but that is that is a hell of a choice. Yeah, I dig it. I mean, I, I think I, I typically enjoy my Royal Oaks in solid gold. Um, but if you're going to make the exception, I think titanium is a pretty fun way to do it. Uh, and yeah, I just, I, I think the, the, in the, the watch itself, it's like yet another thing that the Royal Oak can do that kind of flies in the face of convention. Like first putting a QP in a Royal Oak format is kind of a crazy thing to do in the first place. And they obviously did that and have been doing it for some time. And then to now make, to take it all the way back to kind of its roots, like a, a luxury steel watch, but we've taken it a step further by making a luxury titanium QP. I want to get the phrase, Very Royal I Oak. typically like my Royal Oaks in solid gold on on like a t-shirt or a hoodie. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get the merch train rolling. Uh, I would yeah. I would buy one Going of those. All the way around the coffee mug. That's what I want. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's, uh, what was your pick, Danny? For me, it was the Speedmaster also, Stephen. It was one of those like that I didn't actually appreciate as much until I saw it in the metal. I was actually with Davey when he shot the week on the wrist for Jack. And I got to yeah. wear it a little bit. I got to see it. Uh, and it's just so good. I mean, I can't even explain how good the bracelet is on that watch. I mean, it's just like it's silky smooth. Like I just was holding it in my hand more than wearing it on my wrist. 
um, and is like a not a notable chronograph wearer, um, that one kind of had me big time. Yeah. Yeah. I'm the same. I'm like not a chronograph guy. I've, I've wanted to own a Speedmaster for a long time and I just like can never, I don't know, at the end of the day, like I never feel quite strongly enough to pull the trigger. This watch, I, I, I want this watch. Like there's no two ways about it. I was trying to figure out a way to like soft pedal that there's, there's no two ways. Like I want, I want this watch and I might, I might get it at some point. And then there's a reasonable chance that like all the other chronographs I've ever owned, I sell it after six months and I'm like, okay, learning experience, whatever. But I don't know. There's something about it that's kind of magnetic. Yeah, it's like really charming. Like even just like the word Omega, the word mark is a little bit different than the standard Omega Speedies. And it's just like all these little things, the little almost patina going on. The whole thing just really works. All right. Uh, for January, I'm trying to think if there are any honorable mentions. I mean, Bulgari dropped a couple new Octo Finissimos, all of which are very, very nice. Not my favorite Octo Finissimos, uh, which is why they didn't didn't get my vote here. Um, you know, some new cool Seiko stuff. Yellow gold LM perpetual, like cool stuff in January, but I I don't know. I think the Speedy and the uh, Royal Oak QP kind of sit in a, a tier of their own. Let's uh let's go to February. Um, Danny, you want to kick us off here? Yeah, and I'm hoping I'm I might be picking something James picked. I'm just assuming. I have no, I've not seen your list, but I'm going with the uh, the Seiko SLA 037. So it's the 55th anniversary. Um, just like all three of those watches were cool, um, but this one just like really stuck out to me it's pretty much the like a re-edition of the 62 moss just with like better modern materials better movement um a lot more pricey um but mm -hmm. it's a design that i would just wear the hell out of i mean it like you look at it and you understand why seiko likes that design you understand why people love that design it's kind of like it reminds me of a submariner in a lot of ways when you look at like a quintessential dive watch that's one of them um and just like as a trio of releases, really cool, but I lasered in on that one. Yeah, it's a great watch for sure. Was that your pick, James? Oh, no. No, no. <laughs> oh, okay. Oh, no, no. I like now, my Seiko Divers know. considerably less expensive. Okay. Uh, so what's, uh, what was that. your pick? Um, yeah, mine is the uh, the Breitling Avi Ref 765 1953 re-edition. I, I think it's one of the best watches of the year. Uh, they, they got the kind of bum dice roll of launching a great watch in February, probably under the assumption that it would be in all of our hands and in front of our cameras and the rest of it by April. And of course, that just didn't really work out that way. They, Breitling had a great year, uh, despite. I, I, I don't think that they're hurting in any way. Uh, and the, the chronomat is probably the thing that people that sticks in people's minds from the year. Uh, but for me, it's absolutely this one. It's a it's a just a photocopy perfect reedition of a truly gorgeous watch. You know what I love about that watch? It comes in platinum. Platinum with a blue uh, dial. Platinum, blue dial on this like sort of saddle colored, like brown rust colored stitched strap. Uh, that is quietly a badass watch. Like it oh, looks like sure. a vintage steel Breitling and it's a mm -hmm. modern platinum Breitling. I would, I would fuck with that. That's a pretty, pretty awesome watch. Yeah, no, I agree. I like all three versions. I think the steel one at eight grand ish, 7,900 Swiss francs. Uh, is uh, is a great deal considering you're getting a cost certified hand wound movement from Breitling. They, I mean, I said this on another podcast recently, but they they are kind of the like depending on your scope, they're one of the biggest chronograph brands there are, especially if you go back to a world before 
the prevalence of the of the Daytona, you know, the right stuff and and the Navitimer and those sorts of things. And I think this this thing and, and from being another mid-century design, it's just so sweet. Didn't Breitling invent the two-button chronograph? Couldn't tell you. I think that's true. I'll have to fact check myself on this. If if I'm wrong, light me up in the comments, DM me, <laughs> like give me a ton of shit. I deserve it. But like I'm pretty sure Breitling invented the two-button chronograph in the 20s. I think I've yep. seen one of the original ones. I might be making that up, but uh, either way, I, I agree with you. I think they're, it's they're like, like a, quietly a leader. It's like uh, in, inventing the piano necktie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, Stephen, what, what was your February? Perfect. Uh, I picked a watch that could not be more different from the two watches you guys picked. Uh, I picked the MBNF. Uh, LM Flying T without diamonds. Um, I mean, anybody who listens to this knows that, like, I love MBNF. It's not typically stuff I would wear at all, like, not even close. Uh, but I love it, and I really like Max, and I love how creative it is. And I love that, like, you show people MBNF watches, and it totally changes how they think about watches. Like, it, it just blows the doors off of what a watch can be. Uh, and the Flying T was originally conceived as the first MB&F designed specifically for women. And with that in mind, they did what a lot of watch brands do. I totally get it. They put diamonds all over it. Um, really nice. Like, I th- I would actually wear it with the diamonds. It was pretty cool. Um, the full baguette set one is absolutely insane. But uh, they dropped it earlier this year without diamonds, with sort of a blue or black guilloche dial. Uh I love it. Like to me, this is if you're looking for like a weird dress watch, like a weird idiosyncratic dress watch, uh, this is is I think up there with the best of the best that you can get. I mean, everything from them is incredible. It's all super fun. It's all kind of genre defying, and uh, yeah, the flying T sick. Good point. Good pick. Yeah, uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna then go for the opposite end of the spectrum. I'm gonna move us to March, and I'm gonna go for something totally totally different. Uh, which is my pick for March were the Grand Seiko uh, 60th anniversary first re-editions. Um, you know, James and I were actually talking about this offline or in Slack yesterday, or as recently as yesterday. Uh, Grand Seiko, the first, the original, original Grand Seiko, beautiful, incredible design. Grand Seiko has very appropriately reissued it. However, they've done it like a million times. There's like, you know, five or six different versions mm-hmm. of this re-edition in different sizes, different metals, different dials, but they've they've always been limited. Uh, and finally, Grand Seiko just said like, you know what? Screw that. We're just going to put them in the collection. Um, and I think the versions that they put in the collection are really, really nice. And in particular, uh, there's a version in titanium with a blue dial uh, that is a very different vibe from the traditional like yellow gold sort of like parchment colored dial. Uh, or even the like platinum on platinum ones. Um, but I, I dig it. I think it's fun. I think it's different. I think it's very Grand Seiko. And and the watch comes in at like 8000 bucks. And I think for $8,000, if you're looking for like a dressy slash everyday watch, uh, this is pretty awesome. Yeah, I agree. I almost picked that one. Almost. Would you, would you pick instead? What beat it out? So I went like way opposite of that. I went with the Hamilton PSR. Um, oh. Because... Uh, was kind of an unexpected release and also it kind of like fits everything that I'm into. So a watch that was developed after a clock that was developed for 2001 a space odyssey and then ends up on the wrist of James Bond is just something I'm automatically going to be into. 
um, but then re-releasing it uh, in a modern package. And I'm picking the, the stainless steel version, not the gold-plated one. Um, but I just love the idea of Hamilton making an LED wristwatch on bracelet that I just feel like no one's talking about. It came out. We talked about it a little bit. It was right before we left the office, too. Like, I think it was like maybe a day before we all went home. And that was it. It kind of just like flew away. Um, but, you know, it was a really cool release. And I'd like to see it in the metal again. If they made this watch in solid gold, would you wear it in solid gold? Hell yeah. And I hope <laughs> and, I, and I would hope it'd be really heavy. I would just hope it was like heavier than it needed to be, too. Dude, it would be a brick. This is a big watch anyway. This watch is heavy in steel, you know? I know James would wear it if it was in solid yellow gold. Oh, for sure. Should we see if Hamilton will make us just have it be the Hodinky Radio edition? It's no. only people on the show can get it in solid gold. You say no, by. James, but you mean yes. Yes. We are, we're, we're all saying yes. <laughs> I think we could get Cole on board. I think Jack might buy one. We could probably get like a solid five to ten of us in on this. Let's buy like a bunch it. of $40,000 digital Hamiltons. I mean, yeah, great idea. <laughs> all right, James, what, what, what do you got for us for, uh, for March? got the same same seiko but the yellow gold the 258 sbgw ah, yeah. so uh for you know for people i i'm a uh, my favorite grand seiko ever is the original 3180 they made three or four different kind of series of those that had all kind of minute differences and then um in 2017 they made the sbgw 252 which is kind of the, a very faithful recreation of that at 38 millimeters and these the 258 which is the yellow gold versus the the titanium that steven spoke of um, the, the, the 258, all they've done is essentially pulled from a few of the other tiny minuscule differences. And then they put it in about a more like a 36, 37 millimeter case. I think it's uh 35.8. So it's slightly smaller and that size isn't going to make a difference. Uh, uh, you know, we have a colleague that has a 252 who's let me wear it around the office and it's essentially a perfect dress watch, uh, by my measure. It's just stunningly beautiful, super wearable and a slightly smaller would be awesome. For sure. Great watch. Yeah, I I agree. I mean, I picked I picked the blue and titanium one mostly because it's more affordable and kind of like it's the most new, I guess, of what they did. But mm. uh, for my money, at the end of the day, I think I'm with you. I think yellow gold is is the move there. All right. So March, we all want uh, gold watches. Crushed it. <laughs> uh, I think for April... April was a tough one, as we mentioned at the top of the show. Uh, we essentially got what should have been SIHH happened in April. Watches and Wonders uh, happened in April. Uh, so we just got a giant dump of press releases in our inboxes. More watches to sort through than we thought possible. Um, we did it. Luckily, over the course of the following like two, three months, we actually got to see some of them. It was a little weird to like have all these new products and not get to see anything, but... Uh, I don't know. There were, there were some real standouts here. I I have two. One I picked as the winner. One as a very close runner up. But honestly, they're pretty neck and neck. I wonder what what stood out for you guys from the the sort of virtual show. Well, I IWC was up there for me in some degree, and then I just left the show and traveled to Japan. Um, so not to like completely not answer your question, but I ended up going with the uh, the Seiko SPB one five three. So that would be the it's not technically a Willard reissue, but it just looks like a Willard in some fashion. Um, yeah. I basically, like when all those watches came out, there was it, like you said, it was like sensory overload, and a lot 
of brands released a lot of watches and then quietly off in the corner we got two watches the spb 153 spb 151 one had black dial on bracelet one is green dial green bezel on a rubber strap and i picked that one just because it's an interesting green color i love the, the shape the shape of the case but also it's 42 millimeters which is just like a lot more wearable and when with the way that seiko's lugs are that ends up wearing even smaller than that i think um and I just like tool watches and that watch just like hit home for me. Although the IWC Portuguese releases were just like right under there. Yeah. I mean, that's where my head was at was, was IWC. Um, I think the new Portuguese models were really fantastic. And in particular, the new 40 millimeter automatic, um, that's a watch I've wanted IWC to make for years. Uh, I actually said when I reviewed the, time time and date eight day a couple years a uh, couple uh years ago i guess like two years ago that like this is the watch i wanted was a smaller time only portuguese i never thought they would do it uh and when they did they did an awesome job uh, i think the blue on white dial is absolutely killer and that is now like probably in my top five for like you know when friends ask like hey i want to buy an everyday watch you know that can kind of be sporty it can be dressy i can jump in a pool with it like whatever uh, you know, first question is always, do you want something on a bracelet or something on a strap? If the answer is something on a strap, like this very quickly gets toward the top of the list for me. A good pick for sure. Yeah. I like that watch a lot. For my pick, I went with the, uh, with the other SPB release of the, of the month, which is the SPB one, four, three. I later bought one. Uh, I, I don't, there's not a ton to say the bummer about April is that also, by picking that, I can't pick the Zen U50 or uh, technically I've moved my next April pick into May as it was only off by like a day. Uh, but there was a lot of great watches. A few of my most favorite watches of the year came out in one month. Um, but I went with the SPB uh, 143. You know, it's a 40.5 millimeter kind of skin diver effect. Um, 200 meter dive watch from Seiko that has a 70 hour power reserve and drilled lugs. This incredible steel bezel. I've been obsessed with it. We did a week on the wrist. It's absolutely, you know, it's the watch I wore most this year. I got mine months later by the time they actually started to hit the market and everything else. And uh, I, I, I can't say enough great things about it. Yeah, I love that it only took us to get to April before we start cheating. Uh, which, which honestly, I'm kind of shocked we made it this far, but, uh, well, I got the watching question for next month, which we can move to if you want, um, is, uh, is, you know, it, it I got it also in March to, or in May to review. Uh, so I think it's more of a May watch. Okay. Just, that's All a right. very that's, subjective that's way of looking at that, James. That's mm -hmm. okay. I'll, I'll let you cheat a little bit there. Uh, we can move on to that. I, I guess my last, my last thing to say would be it bummed me out that I couldn't, include Cartier in here. Um, I think the IWC ultimately takes the cake for me. I think I've kind of flip-flopped a couple of times, but like all of the new Cartier tank and Santos Dumont models are absolutely yeah. killer. Uh, the new uh, Privé asymmetrique, which comes either plain or skeletonized, uh, and then the new mechanical Santos Dumont models, they're incredible. Like it's, it's Cartier doing what Cartier does best they pulled out all the stops. All the watches have storytelling components to them with like engravings and special packaging. And like they really put a lot of thought and effort into this. It wasn't simply like, let's go in the archive, recreate something and push it out the door because we know it'll sell. Um, and I think that's like nobody does that kind of like romantic 
uh, storytelling like Cartier. And these watches to me just exemplify that. So big shout out to Cartier, even though I didn't ultimately uh, yeah. settle on that watch. Big yeah, shout that's out, a good point. Big, big shout out to April. Yeah, big <laughs> shout out to April. Uh, what's your what's your April May watch, James? The Doxa Sub Three Hundred Carbon. Ah, uh, yeah. okay. It's a watch that like uh, I I recently prepped a very similar like watches of twenty twenty uh, story, and I realized that this is a watch that I have not stopped thinking about uh, since it was here. It's too expensive. I can't afford it. That's it's, it's that's an easy reason to get out of the market for one. Um, but I, I own a couple of the standard 300s that they're, that this exact model is based off of. It's like a carbon copy, but in carbon. Um, and, and it's, uh, it, it, they're, they're just the most charming watches under five, say $5,000 or $3,000 or whatever line you want to put in the sand. I just think they are so much fun. And, uh, and, and it's so fun to wear something that, that has, uh, aesthetically no concept that a, a Submariner exists. Most dive watches in the world kind of at least say, oh, well, we like the Submariner, so we made this. And Docs is kind of like, well, huh? Like they're <laughs> just totally fully doing their own thing. Um, yeah. And then to make it, to make, to take their, the, 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 the original sort of 67 proportions of a thin case 300 and just render that and the bezel in carbon, it, the effect is wild. It's such a fun watch. It's not like yeah, that's a, else either. That's a super cool one. I I, I agree. I think that's it, it. It hadn't occurred to me to pick that, but in looking through the releases, I think I probably should have known you were going to pick that. I feel yeah, like I, it was it was uh, a mistake on my part to not assume that. I think the I think the embargo is like the twenty eighth of April, twenty eighth yeah, or twenty ninth, like maybe the, even the thirtieth. Um, but I had it hands on early May, so I figured that was okay. Fair. Okay. Uh, I'm gonna pick a watch that again. I'm 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 jumping in here because I think I'm picking something that's like kind of the opposite of what you picked, uh, and that is the Royal Oak uh, Jumbo in platinum with diamond indexes, uh, made for Yoshida. Um, I picked this watch for like a million different reasons. I mean, love a good Jumbo, love an all platinum Royal Oak. Like they weigh a ton and they're amazing. Um, the black onyx dial with eleven diamonds for the hour markers the only one that isn't a diamond is at three o'clock there's a white on black date wheel so it corresponds with the color of the dial um the fact that it's a limited edition you can only get in japan uh like this this watch sounds like something that a focus group would have designed to appeal to me um (laughs) and like like i feel like somewhere francois was just like how can we make steven's heart hurt uh <laughs> let's let's create this watch um shout out to francois i love you francois um but yeah this is just like this is so good and ap yeah it's flashy yeah it's in your face but like ap kind of embraces that and does it in a way that is sort of self-aware and i don't know it just like there's no other way to put this like this is a watch that could be like a total douchebag watch and yet it doesn't feel that way to me at all um and i i love that i don't know it just it speaks to me yeah it's not the watch it's the wrist always will be always (laughs) has been yeah i think these are cool who doesn't love a weird fun you know small market or not small market but like market singleized uh uh, roll up yeah i'm on board 
Yeah, I think it actually like goes past douchebag. It's like it, it's like it's almost like an elevated watch. You like you either know that that's cool or you don't. And I think that watch is awesome. That's an, that's a that's a pick I didn't even think about. <laughs> cool, Danny. What's your uh, what's your May pick? Mine's closer to James in the sense of like weird material, all black, everything situation. Mm. So I went with the uh, the Zenith Chronomaster Revival Shadow. That watch just like spoke to me when I saw it. Um, and it's and and I saw the revival liberty in the metal this year um so similar like same case shape totally different case material i mean this is this the shadow is made from micro blasted titanium um and i just love the uh the strap is like um it's like a cordura effect rubber so it's like a rubber strap so it, it's like you wouldn't expect it it looks like a te- like a textile strap but it's not um so i love that watch for like a multitude of reasons one of them the i don't own any titanium cased watches or any black you know uh black on black on black and i think that at the size of that watch it would look really cool um it's almost like conservative um but it also the dial design is so like vintage evocative that i just it just gets me every time like the el primero you know cursive word mark even the uh the numerals going around the dial just look like they were hand painted even though i know they probably weren't but the fact that they look like they do is cool enough for me um and that watch just is awesome um, again, I'm not a chronograph wearer, but I love the size of that. I like that it's a yep. smaller chronograph, and I would I would wear the hell out of that one. I think I've That's said wear the hell out of like twice already, but I would. It's <laughs> a really really cool watch, and if I, if my um, if my Doxa uh, cheat had been this you know. Uh, you know, canceled by Stephen uh, summarily, then I, I would have gone with the the other one that they did the same same month, which was the manufacturer. Yeah, um, which is kind of a, a classic, a really classic take on the tricolari. So, uh, yeah, a really that watch be- two, that two watch was my things. runner up. Yeah. That was what it, I had after after the AP was the the manufacturer edition. Um, Zenith had a really good year. So good. Yeah, mm-hmm. Zenith had a ton yeah. of good releases. Zenith did have a really good year. I totally, totally agree. All right, let's let's go into June. James, uh, all of you, kick us off here. What was your what was your June watch? That'd be the Longines Heritage Classic Tuxedo in the two hand with the small mm. with the small seconds. I think it's a I think it's a, a watch that has been on my list since June to have been able to have seen in person. And of course, we don't do a ton of that these days. Um, but I, I think the chronograph is fantastic and gorgeous, but I think there's just drilled lugs, 38.5 millimeters with a tuxedo dial. The only text on the dial is Longines. And the more you look at that dial, the prettier it gets. It's just such, uh, that's a lot of watch for, I think list is two grand. Uh, that's a ton of watch for two grand, a modern, modern, you know, swatch derived at a caliber with a decent, with a good power reserve and like more, more than you'd get from a 28 series. And uh, I, a beautiful dial. I love the drilled lugs. I bet you, you know, it's a watch that like, it's that exact sort of watch where you put it on a NATO or on like a Cordura and it's kind of super casual. But if you just flipped it over to a Cordovan or, or you know, one of, one of the more low-key, no-stitching sort of straps from the, the shop, I think you'd have uh, something much dressier. Longines yeah. had a great year. And, uh, and, and, and I'm sure that you guys have some Longines picks on your list, but... Uh, these ones, uh, this one I really like. The chronograph is just stunningly beautiful as well. So I think they did a great job with these. Tuxedo dials are fun. They're not that we don't see them that often. And I love, I really, really love the 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 you know, like ardently minuscule use of text. Yeah, I I totally agree. I think this watch is a killer. This this made my short list. It wasn't my final pick, but 
Um, I think I I I think for all around versatility, this is probably the the move because I agree with you. This this is a watch you could buy. You could buy this three straps and be set forever. Oh, for sure. I went with the Longine also actually. Um, and it was a watch that when it was introduced, I didn't actually pay attention to. Um, got to see it uh, in the metal a couple months later. So it was the Longines Spirit 40 millimeter. Um, completely the opposite of the tuxedo dial in the sense there's a ton of text and a ton of stuff on the dial, including five applied stars. Um, uh, but it's one of those watches when I saw it, it at its price, it feels a lot more expensive and a lot higher quality than what they're offering for at that price, which I think it's like around $2,500, $2,800, somewhere in there. What you're getting is a really nice matte dial, really nicely sized case. Granted, the lugs are a little long, but still at 40 millimeters, they can get away with that. Oversized crown. So it's that sort of traditional pilot watch look um, that you kind of normally see from an IWC maybe. But Longine is sort of elevating it with applied numerals. Um, the loom is really good. They have a lot of depth to them. So they're applied, but they're also really thick. Um, and I just would have completely written this watch off if I hadn't seen it. And it just always goes back to that, like, try to see watches in person before you make yeah. decisions on them. Because I, I don't think I ever would have thought of this watch ever again had I not seen it. And now I think about it fairly often. It was, it was I, I remember <laughs> telling my wife, I was like, this is... This is a really nice. This is really nice, and and I, and I wore it, um, like for a day straight when I had it. It was it was great. All right. So I know I said that I almost picked the Longines Heritage Classic Tuxedo and ended up not picking it. But James, I think you convinced me. I think I'm gonna go with that watch too. Uh, I had one or two others here. I think the Tag uh, Fragment Hoyero Two is awesome. Um, I think Paddock actually did some cool stuff in June, uh, but at, you know, slightly less realistic end of things. Uh, but yeah, I think ultimately, I think you, I think you convinced me. I think the, the tuxedo is, is the move. Swish. I think we've now renamed, <laughs> we, we've renamed the month Longjune at this point. Um, Longjune. So, Longjune. Can't wait for launch January. <laughs> Febulange? Are we just going to make all of the uh, all the months? <laughs> Have fun with Longe March. Longe Arch. Yeah. <laughs> Longe Yeah. All right. Um, and they ran with into that, that, with the truck commercials too. Trarch doesn't work. <laughs> Trucktober. All right. No? With, okay. With with that, we're moving. We're moving to July. We're going to keep this calendar flowing. Um, for July, uh, we kind of got a heater right out of the gate. Uh, yeah. The morning of July first. Uh, with the Tudor Black Bay 58 Navy Blue. Um, yep. And I think that has to be my pick. I have one other one I'll mention in a minute, but I I think the BB58 Blue is is the move here. Uh, I can't remember the last time a watch made a bigger impact on the internet than this. I think Tudor did a really smart thing getting samples out to people for the day of launch. So like, you know, that first week in July, like my entire Instagram feed was just this watch over and over and over again in different settings. Uh, and it very quickly became one of those watches that like I couldn't imagine not existing. It was also like the idea that Tudor Rolex had basically said, we're not releasing anything this year. And all of a sudden, right, they did. And it was a huge deal in the moment. I, rem I remember seeing or hearing we had a meeting at some point where we knew that Tudor was releasing something. 
and that in itself was just like huge news and then obviously when they did this i picked it also spoiler um but i like it because i think out of context this watch is way better than it is in context i think in context people could say oh it's boring because you know the original Buckley 58 has a little more color a little more warmth the red flourish on the bezel it goes people have gone two ways about this watch but i think it's so perfectly distilled and captures that that Tudor snowflake DNA that it it's a, it's a no brainer to exist in Tudor's lineup. It should have always been there. Um, I think it'll be a longstanding sort of model in the collection and it's just, it's an awesome release and it doesn't need to have watches. Don't always need to be like splashy. They don't always have to be so new. They can be the obvious pick. This just needed to happen and it did. And, and I, I that's why I picked it. Yeah, it was same, same. That's what I picked. And for all the Man, same reasons, our first unanimous month, yeah, it's a killer watch. One of the best of the year for sure in the sports category. Easy. Yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed. You know, I, I got a chance to uh, get one in for the the hands on and, and shoot the photos and stuff. And I I just loved every minute of it. Felt bad having to send it back. Put that on the list of the stuff that I would have bought and didn't. It's right right in there with the carbon. Uh, yeah. yeah, just a sick watch. Kudos to anyone who picked one up. You've got a great daily. Yeah, uh, I I will say. It overshadowed two other watches that I think we have to at least mention here. One is Omega relaunched the Constellation, which while not my favorite uh, collection in Omega's lineup, and I don't think the most interesting to like most of our readers. Yeah, I see James James is doing a big, big thumbs down move on our Zoom call right now. But uh, yeah, it's not my thing, but like I think a lot of people probably buy it. And so Omega redesigning the Constellation is like newsworthy. Uh and then tag redid the Carrera, so we got you know a new a new Black Bay fifty eight, new entire lineup of Carreras, and a new lineup of Constellations. Uh, and to James's second thumbs down on the Zoom call, I used uh, the other hand. <laughs> R- Roger other Ebert. Hands. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, love that. Um, yeah, I think the you know the new Carreras are big. They're forty four millimeters. They're thick because they use the Hoyero two movement. Like, okay, they're not they're not exactly the Carrera I would I would buy. There are certainly Carreras in the collection I would buy, um, but I think the overall redesign is is cool and it kind of breathes new life into the collection in a way that I don't think Tag has done in in quite a while. Like this this direction of Carrera feels much more in line with what you know feels intuitively Tag Hoyer to me versus something like the the skeletonized modular cased ones that we've seen over over the last couple of years. Uh all right, let's uh let's keep it moving here. Let's go to August, which to Danny's point, uh Rolex and Tudor told us they were not releasing anything and then that all changed. Uh July 1st we got a new Tudor. And then in August, we got a bunch of new Rolexes. So I have a funny feeling those are going to dominate this month. But uh, Danny, where where are you at? I see you nodding along. Yeah, I mean, it's obvious. Um, it, it, sometimes you just can't avoid the choice. To me, it's it's the Submariner, the date or no date. Um, they Sure, they upsized it a little bit, but I think we've heard whatever that sizing means, I think it was negligible. Um, what they really did was yeah. slim, slim the lugs down and make the proportions the way that I think that we were used to uh, in vintage or neo-vintage subs um, and just a, a little less maxi. Um, 
and it just looks great. I mean, it's 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 the watch that they will always make. It's the watch that they're known for now, um, and it looks you know. It's funny when I read your your article about it, Stephen. You almost can't tell the difference between them. I mean, it's really no. it's really difficult. The one thing that like is just something I can't get over. It's such a small thing. I don't like the coronet between Swiss and made on any of the new Rolex models. So for whatever reason, I just can't get behind it. It's a small detail, but when you own a watch, small details matter. And for some reason, it's just one added. It's one coronet too many for me. But otherwise, okay. great watch. I had a, a second pick, which I might bring up in a minute, which is couldn't be more the opposite of Rolex, but I'll save it. All right. James, where were you at on this? OP36 in yellow, baby. Yeah, that's my pick too, man. Yeah, what a watch. I can't wait to Ugh. see one. I literally cannot wait to see it in person. Yellow is such a hard color to do on cars, to do on watches, to do on anything. And if it's even close to the the kind of deeply saturated, not too green little bit orange sort of yellow that they've got in the images it'll be uh something so cool and and i just think like this is this for me is like an explorer with a sense of humor it's so fun i've heard people the yellow seems to be really taken off like people who i know that have gotten it are like really enjoy it sick yeah uh i had the chance to see one for a couple hours for a shoot uh james i'll send you some wrist shots after this but uh it's it's so cool man like i i mean People who know me or people who see me on video will know I basically wear exclusively like dark blue, gray and neutral colored clothing. Like I basically wear no color. Um, I would love to walk around wearing this like screaming bright yellow watch. Uh, it's awesome. It's so much fun. And James, like you said, like it, it has a sense of humor, which is like not classically what we associate with Rolex, you know, uh, mm -hmm. But I love that. I love that it's like it's a cool, fun, everyday watch that doesn't take itself too seriously. And I don't know. I, I hope these are around in the collection for a long time. Yeah, me too. I, I would I would love to own one someday. I think that they're uh, I think they're beautiful. I think that's just the right size for an everyday Rolex. And yeah. uh, the, the spread of colors is great. And, and don't get me wrong. I can, I can see the case that anyone could make for any of those colors. Let's see, it's, it's the yellow. Yeah, I wear a lot of blue. So it's the yellow. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right, let's let's keep moving. Uh, we're taking a little longer than than we'd planned, but uh, you know, just more more for the listeners, man. Uh, September. Uh, I got so this. We're coming one. out. We're coming out of Tudor Rolex summer, hot Rolex mm -hmm. summer. Uh, September. What are we What are we going with, James? Well, you know, originally we had planned to have Kara on this call, and I thought I, I was going to have to snake her on this one because I'm pretty sure this would have been her pick. Um, but it's the, the Patek Philippe, uh, 7234 white gold, 38 and a half millimeter pilots travel time. I just think yeah. I, I got to spend an afternoon, uh, while working on a, a magazine shoot, uh, for like a, a Hodinkee magazine shoot, uh, in LA, I got to spend an afternoon with the rose gold version. And it is just the moment you pick it up, you're like, this feels too small for what it is. I've, I've, you know, I've had a, uh, the 55 uh, 24 on wrist before the full size and the, it's not it's not at all too small it takes about 10 minutes and you're like oh no this is big enough i can read it the buttons feel really good it looks incredible and now to have it in uh, you know in the white metal uh with that beautiful dial uh i know that there's there you know these i think this is still in some metric a controversial watch among deep patek people i'm not a deep patek person at all i'm not a patek person in any way shape or form uh not for lack of trying um <laughs> 
<laughs> robberies are hard when everyone stays home. Uh, it's a lot harder to get that kind of uh, that kind of side hustle going uh, illegally. So you you know you got to stay in the lane, and, and that that's keeping me from buying into the Patek family these days. But I do really like this watch. We'll try to we'll try to fix that in twenty twenty one for you, James. <laughs> you you yeah. and me will do a heist, and we'll get you your your uh, first Patek. Ooh, a heist! Am I? I'm, I'm a robbery. I feel complicit now. <laughs> For some <laughs> somehow, you know, the three of us this. can go heat style, and uh, well, it's going to have to know, be four because we've officially bought in gray. He'll have true. to cut this out of the chat. All right, all right. We're all getting twenty five percent of one Patek Philippe, which is more <laughs> than I have now. All right, I'll I'll take the the two pushers sticking off the left side of the case. That's that's okay. about twenty five percent of the watch, I think. But uh, yeah, I uh, I also went with a pretty elevated pick uh, for this month. Um, I would take the 1815 Finn in Honey Gold from Longa. So dang good. Uh, cool watch. So good. First of all, first of all, <laughs> Honey Gold every damn day of the week. Like sure. you can make you can make anything in Honey Gold, and I would want to buy it. Um, but like the 1815 Finn is such a weird Longa. It doesn't get nearly as much recognition as the Saxonia Finn. But it's like this is a 38 millimeter beautiful Longa dress watch in a proprietary gold like. I don't know. For me, like if you're if you we're talking dress watches, this is as good as it gets. Like there's there's nothing you could do to make this watch better. I think that's an amazing pick. Yeah, good good pull for sure. So I blew all of my money on Tudor and Rolex in the mm. preceding months. So coming into September, I am splurging on the Timex Q um, with the LCD. Um, just kind of one of those things where I'm like, I know some, I know I like something when I see it. Jack wrote this one up. I saw it. I said, I like it. Therefore, I'm talking about it now. Um, it's just a cool watch. Um, it's admittedly, if I bought one, I'd probably look at it and appreciate it more than actually wearing it. Um, there's other watches, you know, out there that I like wearing more, but I think as like a design object, as a, you know, as a vintage revival, um, if you can even call old Timex's vintage, I think it's a cool watch. I think it offers something fun. Um, and we need that sometimes. And I, I like that watch a lot. Yeah. Good call. Uh, I just want to sneak one more in here. Uh, honorable mention time. Cause why the hell not? I can, uh, the Hublot classic fusion 40 year anniversary pieces, uh, made me look at them and go, am, am I a Hublot guy now? Like, is that is that who I am? Have, has my like inter like essential essence changed? Uh, these watches are really damn good looking, and it's a smart way to pay tribute. My only gripe, and honestly, the thing that kept them from from winning here, because I kind of wanted to give it to the Hublot, uh, is that they're forty five millimeters, yeah. and like I just can't wear a forty five mil. It's just too big. Like it's it's not even that it looks too big; it is physically too big and is uncomfortable to wear. Um, but like if they release this watch at like 38 millimeters or even 40 millimeters, dude, I would wear the hell out of a, you know, numeralless, you know, blacked out Hublot. That'd be fun. Yep. No, the size is the only reason I wouldn't have picked this. It's too big. They are too big. I actually don't even understand why we're perpetuating a 45 millimeter watch when it's based on a reference design that was so much smaller. <laughs> like, like yeah, it se this no, seems exactly. like a move from 2010 to like look back into your history and be like, well, that's good, but people feel it's too small. We'll just make a big one. But now like people have come around on, on size, uh, you know, the, the, the reverse Panerai effect of, of everybody wanting things that are under 40 versus over 45. And yeah. I think this watch would have been, 
I think they could have they could have owned a new cycle if this watch was 38 37 36 40 I, I think anything over 40 and I think it they, it it starts to sit with everything they already have cuz you can buy a big bang 42 millimeter even in titanium which is a fantastic watch on wrist doesn't feel like 42 millimeters wears a bit smaller has that great tiny dial you know a bit of a balance not unlike a doxa so it's understandable why i dig it but these would have been these would have been just something else at uh yeah call it 38 yeah totally agree this week's episode is presented by grand seiko 2020 marks a huge year in the history of Grand Seiko. A little over a week ago, the brand turned 60 years old, a milestone that traditionally represents a moment of rebirth in Japanese culture. To celebrate, Grand Seiko both launched the GS9 Grand Seiko Enthusiast Club in the United States and released the limited edition SBGE263 Spring Drive GMT watch. Like I said, this is a huge moment for Grand Seiko and its fans. The GS9 Club started a few years ago in Japan as a community for Grand Seiko enthusiasts, but now it's open to U.S.-based collectors for the very first time. Anyone who buys a Grand Seiko watch from an authorized dealer can join and enjoy an exclusive e-commerce platform, special events, gifts, and digital content. The first U.S. GS9 special release is the SBGE263, a celebratory limited edition watch inspired by the beauty of the eagle. The sporty stainless steel case and bracelet are complemented by a rich brown bezel and dial, with the latter featuring a pattern inspired by the bird's wing feathers. A bright gold GMT hand serves as a nod to the eagle's beak and adds a nice visual punch, too. Powering the watch is the 9R66 Spring Drive GMT movement, and you can admire the second's hand gliding elegantly across the dial as a reminder of the tech inside. Only 110 pieces of the SBGE263 will be made, and the watch is only available in the United States. Pre-order is open now online for GS9 members, and non-members will have the opportunity to purchase via Grand Seiko Boutiques beginning in January. As we close out 2020, Grand Seiko is still finding plenty of ways to celebrate, reminding us that watchmaking can be a source of inspiration and community. To learn more about Grand Seiko, the GS9 Club, and the SBGE263, be sure to visit GrandSeikoGS9Club.com. All right, let's get back to the show. All right, let's let's roll into October. We're getting getting to the the end of the year here. We got three months left. Uh, October. I'll jump in right away here. I I went with a watch that I love. I don't think I would actually wear. So that's like a weird caveat here. But um, I really love the new Silver Snoopy fiftieth uh, anniversary Speedmaster. Um, again, it's like a little, like I, I don't own stuff with like logos on it, let alone like, would I wear a watch with like a cartoon on it? Like, that's just not my, not my vibe. Uh, but that said, like, this is awesome. A blue on white Speedmaster is a great idea. And then the case back with like the rotating earth and Snoopy in the capsule going around and ducking behind the moon. Like when we talk about watches with a sense of humor, like the OP 36 in those, in those bright colors, Like, this is another case where Omega does so much, like, you know, very serious, macho, like, we went to the moon, or we're the watch of choice for James Bond, that to be like, yeah, there's a cartoon dog riding a spaceship, you know, around the Earth on the case back of your watch. I I love that. Like, this makes watches fun. It makes them more approachable. It makes them enjoyable for more people. Uh, And to do that using the Speedmaster as a platform, like, all day. I'm going to vote for that anytime I can. Yeah, no, I remember I got to write that intro up for that one. 
And it was the first time where you're reading it in real time and you're like, okay, it's a limited edition Speedmaster. Great. I see white dial, it's blue bezel. And as I'm reading, I wasn't really picking up what they were putting down in the press release. It took me like two reads to realize like, wait a second. <laughs> so he's traveling around. Like they, they, I didn't actually like process the information that Snoopy travels around the dial. The earth is rotating. There's some kind of three-dimensional artwork aspect going on back there. It, and when I finally saw the video they released, I, I can't wait to see this watch in person. It is really in a year where we need something like that. I mean, that was, you, you don't know you need that kind of fun watch to kind of brighten your, your spirit a little bit, but the Omega pulled that off big time, but I didn't pick yeah. it. I didn't pick it. <laughs> All right. I, what was your pick? I picked the, uh, the IWC, uh, top gun chronograph. Um, it yeah. was the SFTI edition. And again, um, it was a watch that had I not seen it in the metal, and this is like going to be my kind of mantra for the pod, I think. I don't know that I would have picked it, but I wore it. I got it. I saw it without seeing any specs, so I didn't actually realize the size. Later, we found out it's 44 millimeters, but it wears smaller. It, it honestly does. I think it's because of the ceramic case um, in all black. It just wears small, and it the quality of IWC dials, the matte dials they have, on their their pilot lineup is just it's amazing i mean it, it's not like yeah. they're not trying to do some kind of vintage effect it just is like a it just presents as a fun tool watch um and that whole package black case with the green textile strap and like the little pops of red everywhere which is a really cool release kind of under the radar release too yeah i think that's a great choice i'm i i love me a good iwc pilot you know it's like kind of a watch cliche at this point but I don't know. They're just great. I own one. I own the Hodinkee uh, Mark 18. Uh, I owned a Mark 17 back in the day. Like, they're great watches. Absolutely. Uh, for this month, I picked uh, arguably one of my most favorite watches of the year. Obviously, that goes with this list, but even on the, this would be on the short list, and that's the new Aquastar Deep Star reissue. Mm. Uh, I got one. I absolutely adore it. I have a black dial example, and it is just... It's perfect. I mean, it's from the same same general guy that did the sub three hundred Doxa reedition reedition in twenty seventeen that I've talked about previously. That then informed the carbon. So it makes sense. Like this, uh, Rick is his name, and he's able. He really does have a knack for this, for finding really great legacy designs and then just respecting them. Uh, so this is a little bit bigger than an original Deep Star, uh, but still super wearable. Forty one millimeters skin diver style case you get a leisure parade column wheel chronograph movement and it's packaged in, in at, at, at what i think is a great price point um and i've been wearing it a ton since i got it probably my second most worn watch of the year uh all things considered and i just i just think it's uh, gorgeous it has the right movement it's at the right price point i think it's just a, a killer thing from a brand with um with such an incredible history uh for uh, dive watches yeah, that's a great watch. That's a watch that never really made it on on my radar, if I'm being honest. Like, I remember when it came out being like, oh, this is cool. And then I, I never saw one in person. I mean, like you've mentioned before, like our, our usual sort of flow of seeing mm -hmm. product was interrupted this year. My, what I saw was was a little more limited. But uh, yeah, it's good to hear that, that you think this was executed so well. And I know Jason uh, Heaton really liked it as well. So for sure. Uh, between the two of you guys, I think you 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 would both know way better than me if this was done well. So uh, I think uh, if you if it has your vote of confidence, I have a funny feeling I would like it too. 
Yeah, I'll uh, I'll have to make sure you get a chance to play around with it at some point. It's yeah, a good thanks. One. Thank you. Um, All right, let's do November. I went crazy in November. I Perfect. Uh, that's what I love. I went with the uh, the Breitling Chronomat 36 millimeter. Yeah, you I, did. I think that's a people don't realize what that is. I think often brands release watches <laughs> as ladies models and they, they, they like label them that and then people are just, okay, okay, well, I'm not going to buy that. I think that happened with the OP34, the last generation of it. And uh, without you, Stephen, I don't think it would have caught on as much, but here I'm going to go ahead and say the Chronomat was super popular this year when it was released. I think the bracelet is awesome. The whole vibe of that watch, but it's also pretty big. Um, I think it's what 42 millimeter. But here at 36 millimeters, you're getting a lot of that in a time only, or not time only, time and date package that I think is going to be super wearable for a lot of people. Um, of course, like some of the models are diamond encrusted, but there are a few of them that are just standard steel with a variety of really interesting dials. And I think like I'm looking at that watch. I'd love to check that out. I, I could I could wear that for sure. Dude, if they did this watch in the the all steel model, but with what they're calling the copper dial, which is basically like the salmon equivalent, uh, it would be unbelievable. I would be so on board. Uh, and in steel, these watches are like in thirty six. They're they're sub five thousand yeah. dollars. Like they're really well priced from a brand like Breitling. Uh, and I, I agree with you. I think I haven't tried this bracelet on, but I would imagine it's extremely comfortable. It looks like it would be. Um, yeah, these could be real sleeper hits. It'd be interesting to see where they take it uh, from here because yeah. I would love to see. I, I owned a, a Breitling Aerospace with a similar bracelet from the uh, mid-90s, an E56062, and the, um, the it has that bullet-style bracelet, and it was all in titanium, including the rods in the bracelet were all titanium as well, and it was one of the most comfortable. Uh, it, it was probably the, the, the cheapest-feeling, most comfortable bracelet I've ever owned because if it wasn't love on your it. wrist... It just rattled like crazy. And then you put it on and it disappeared. It was like not wearing a watch at all. I, that was a, that's a fantastic watch. And I would love to see them iterate with some titanium, some dark dials. Make something like super masculine yeah. at that size. And it can sit right next to the one with the mint green dial. It can sit right next to the ones with all of the, all of the stones on them. And, and I think all of those need to exist. But I'd love to see the the you know the 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 hardcore kind of super sporty version of it yeah especially lest we forget rolex does not make a 36 millimeter explorer anymore so nope. brightling could step in offer a you know a for relatively affordable you know sub five thousand dollar steel sport watch on a bracelet at 36 millimeters with a dark dial or like you said maybe it's now under six thousand dollars but it's titanium with a dark mm -hmm. dial like that could be a really, really appealing watch. I agree. Yeah. Uh, my pick was also kind of weird, um, but I don't think will be that surprising, uh, which is I went with the Royal Oak double balance wheel open worked in black ceramic. Uh, I've been working on a story lately that may or may not be out by the time people uh, people hear this. Uh, TBD on that, but... Uh, kind of looking at the the history of the black ceramic pieces uh from ap but uh, i don't know again like it's sort of cliche to like this watch as much as i like it but it's so damn cool like these black ceramic watches are super lightweight but they feel really high end at the same time which is a, a tough uh line to walk um 
And the double balance wheel has always been one of my favorite AP movements. Like that, that's just AP flexing really hard, showing off what they do and what they do that, you know, often they get talked about in the same conversation as Vacheron and Patek and like, you know, these Longa, like the, the, the highest of highest end, you know, big brands. Uh, but this style, this like very modern high-end watchmaking, uh, I think AP does better than anybody else. I, I just think they do. Uh, it's different. It's a different approach. And this watch uh, caught my attention enough that I wanted to spill a couple thousand words on it. So I figured it should it should make the list here too. Yeah, killer choice. I got a chance last year. Now I don't actually remember if it was last year. It was cold out. I went to Midtown. Uh, and I got, I went to the, uh, AP boutique and they, they allowed me, I don't know, maybe I had an hour with the, uh, black ceramic QP. One of the yeah. hardest things I've ever photographed. I actually got really lucky because I was walking out of the office. I stole something that will uses as a diffuser. It's like a piece of curled up paper kind of. Yeah. We can cut this story if it's not interesting, but I got to the room at, at the AP boutique, having never been there before. It's actually quite a bright, airy, tall sort of boutique and then they take me to this room that was a cave basically it was like black it was black velvet room walls floor like black obsidian style table the light just disappeared i had one i had one flash with me and and i i didn't i took enough photos for the post so we throw it in the show notes or whatever but the uh i remember it was it was my flash was like hot to the touch and I almost killed a full round of batteries in in a in very short order because you had to run it at such high power. I, I remember that, and it probably probably stands as my most stolen Instagram photo um, mm. on on, uh, on on you know stuff where people people will post my, and then drop me in the comments. And what are you gonna do? Cool watches though, <laughs> really cool watches. They feel yeah. so strange. Uh, like as dumb as this sounds, not in your hand, but on your fingertips, like the edges of the ceramic. Mm. Are there, it's so clearly not metal. Yeah. And it's really hard to describe. And it's not the same with all ceramic watches. There's some that they, it's however they finish them or however they create the material, or I'm not really sure, but like there's a distinctly different um, like finger pad sensation to yeah. an AP ceramic watch than there is to a dark side of the moon or a, a, a Octo or, or something like that. And I don't think one's necessarily better than the other. It's probably just a different process in, in recreating all of the really fine details of the Royal Oak case. Uh, but they feel incredible in your hand. And, and like I said, just, just to the touch, like if you get to interact with the buttons or pushers or whatever. Totally agree. Oh, I'm up. Uh, let's see what we've got <laughs> here for November. Oh, uh, the do for uh, simplicity 20th anniversary ah, stuff. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, one of those, I, I mean, talk about a dream watch, right? Like what, what a special thing, I guess it technically would have been, I think October when the first one was auctioned. Uh, end of October. That's okay. Um, but they they came forward with the business announcement and and Mr. Safir and, and and the rest of it on on in November. So I think that's when they kind of said we're going to make uh, what what is it twenty one of these or twenty yeah, yeah twenty one. Uh, what what a what a fantastically cool thing. Uh, you know, it, like and any simplicity would be fine, but this is the simplicity that's that's available right now to uh, ten people theoretically. Yeah. So. Let's then let's just go to December and then we'll do our year end wrap up. Um, December's so easy. December is so easy. All right, what's what's your December then? I mean, it's an insider play, but that uh, Blancpain mil spec that we made. Oh, 
yeah. is just, okay. it's, uh, uh, I, when I saw the images, I was kind of jaw dropped because I remember I was at Basel in 2017 when they made the, their, their tribute to Milspec, uh, which has a date window and the case signature and has a polished case. And I remember I, I should go back and find, find the post I wrote. Um, but I remember saying like, I don't know about this date display so much. And then, uh, and then you're kind of like, wouldn't it just be cool if it didn't have a date and was brushed? Which like I, I feel like I've said about every fifty fathoms for a yeah. long, and uh, and to see them to see the photos and and to, uh, to 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 see how well obviously how well it was received the watch disappeared. Uh, it's it's kind of a silly thing for me to talk about because you know I've already said I couldn't afford a handful of these watches I like and this one is an order of magnitude more expensive, uh, but it didn't it certainly didn't matter uh, to to the to the folks who uh, who were able to uh, pony up for the cash for it and I think they all got just uh, like a perfect dive watch what a thing yeah i don't have much to add to that i mean i think that's a perfect perfect summary of that piece i was gonna say i picked that one also it's uh just an amazing watch i can't wait to you know someday just check that one out in the metal but just the pictures were incredible for it yeah you really can't beat that in december at the end of 2020 yeah i mean i think that's a great choice uh i did pick something different um just because why not um I picked the Seiko King Seiko SJE083. Um, this is essentially Seiko is is relaunching uh, King Seiko as as a brand. Um, it's an LE. It's three thousand pieces. It's a little pricier than I wanted it to be. Uh, it's thirty three hundred dollars, which I was kind of hoping that like they'd come in more between like Prospects and Grand Seiko. I was hoping something would come more like. but um, I don't know. I think this is a really beautiful reissue of a design that like I have always liked other like nerdy Grand Seiko fans have always liked and, and mid-century Seiko fans of all kinds uh, have liked, but that like doesn't really get a lot of play. Uh, So it's good to see this one design, but I'm also optimistic that maybe this means, you know, Seiko will bring back King Seiko in a bigger way uh, and we might get, some more gradations in that product lineup. So I don't know, part of, part of why I picked it is because of, you know, this watch and part of why I picked it is it, it tells me Seiko's thinking in an interesting direction, which when they do that, I'm always going to pay attention. So, yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a beautiful thing for sure. And I also kind of felt the same way where like, it'd be neat if this means that we get to see more King Seiko's, maybe Marvel, Lord Marvel's, because there's some incredible yeah. designs from the 60s and 70s that I think would speak to people today as strongly as they did then. Uh, some really, really fun stuff. Some some great Marvel, Lord Marvel, and, and KS stuff. So I think, yeah, and uh, Seiko had a, a just a great year for sure. Yeah, I agree with you. And I think they had a great year at kind of every price point and every like sub-brand, which uh, is tough tough to do. All right, so to wrap things up, uh, quickly, I'm just going to ask each of you, if you had to have a watch on your wrist from your list of 12, when you woke up on January 1st, what watch would you want it to be? Price is not an issue. If you could just have it magically appear in your collection, first thing, January 1st, what would it be? I'm going the Zenith, uh, the, the revival shadow. It's just something about it. The price, no matter the price, there are more expensive watches on my list. Um, but your call to action, if I'm really thinking about it, and I wanted to look down and, and, and look at my wrist and see what was there, it'd be that watch. Just to something different, something cool, and I'm really into it. Yeah, and in my case, I own uh, 
two of the watches that 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 we covered so i'm, I'm doing pretty well for this year uh but also i, I might as well if, if we're being hypothetical go as greedy as possible i want that do four yeah find yeah. me a, a yellow gold uh 20th <laughs> chef's kiss baby oh yeah um i'm gonna go with one of the two ap's uh i can't make up make up my mind which one but i would be happy with either one uh something about 2020 just like you know it being such a tough year and it being so kind of like sobering uh i kind of want to watch that's just like a big f you watch you know something totally superlative but also totally superfluous uh you know a watch that like you can't really defend but at the same time like should kind of defend itself um and I just think it'd be fun to have something like while I'm, you know, sitting in my apartment recording podcasts or, you know, sitting on the couch catching up on emails. Like, I'd like the thing scratching my MacBook to be something nice, I think. Sure. Yeah. I can, I can get behind that. Yeah. You know, plus, honestly, I, I can't believe I'm saying this. Like, I miss going to Switzerland. You know, I used to complain all the time about going too much. Uh, and I kind of miss it. Like I want to go to the Valley du Joux and spend a day eating like really mediocre food and speaking through awful language barriers with a bunch of like dudes who have been making watches for the last 40 years. Uh, I miss it. And a watch like that, like a really, really high end AP would remind me of some, uh, you know, good days spent in Le Brasseux and, and with those people. So, uh, all in all, I mean, we mentioned it up top, but like, 2020 pretty good year for watches for products you know mm -hmm. let's forget the industry and everything else but like I, th I think there was a moment there in in march that we all kind of expected this year to be quiet we thought people might just not release anything uh and instead they dropped they dropped some heaters on us yeah it just seems because it was so spread out it's hard it was hard to realize it all happened this year and it wasn't until i looked back to make my list i was like wow there's like a lot to choose from. There were some months where I was I, I was hedging. I have multiple picks on there. I mean, there's there was there was a lot of good stuff. Well, I appreciate you guys doing this. Uh, this is a fun way to wrap up the year, and uh, we'll have you have you back on Mike in early 2021. Sounds good. Looking forward to it. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks, James. Awesome. Happy New Year, guys. Up next. I talked to Jack, John, and Cole about the future of the watch industry. Hey guys, good to see you. Good to see you too, Stephen. Good to see you. Hello, Stephen. This is the last Hodinky radio segment of 2020. At least as of recording this, the plan is for this to be the last Hodinky radio segment of 2020. With, uh, uh, with, pretty... great, with great power comes great responsibility. <laughs> hey, the responsibility is all on you guys. I'm I'm here every week, so uh, I'm I'm just trucking along. Uh, I uh, you you guys are the ones who have to close out big here. It's uh, a it's a little bit of a weird situation. We're all um, normally this would be us in the office, uh, you know, <clears throat> sitting in the library, uh, all talking into microphones, and we're we're all uh, geographically in complete in very different locations. Yeah, I feel like this is the kind of recording where we might have like a you know late afternoon scotch or a glass of eggnog or something in the office holiday season kind of uh, episode. I would probably put put the scotch in the eggnog, John. You know, I was going to say why late afternoon. Like I think this could be a lovely like mid morning scotch uh, occasion. <laughs> dig dig in early. Amen. All right. So what we're going to talk about this week is the trade shows and like 
that may seem a little bit weird, a little bit like tradey and industry uh, focused, but I think through talking through this, we'll get a sense of where the industry was in 2019, all the craziness that happened in 2020, and maybe like sort of some like sneak peeks of what the industry might look like in 2021. Uh, and I think the impacts are way beyond the like journalists like us and the retailers. And I, I really think this is going to impact end consumers too. Does that does that make sense and sound good for you guys? Sounds good. Yeah, sounds great. Sounds fantastic. Yeah. Perfect. Everybody on board. That's my favorite way to start the show. I'm, I'm just waiting for one of these weeks when I ask that question and everybody's like, nah, that's terrible. <laughs> it's going to happen. I'm saving it for 2020. All right. I, I got something to look forward to, Cole. Uh, all right, let's let's start things off. I, I think the biggest change, and, and correct me if you guys disagree, I think the biggest change is is the trade shows. Uh, the watch world has, for you know, over a century, oriented itself around these big moments. They're in Switzerland almost invariably. Uh, there are times where different brands, different groups, people who are usually pretty cutthroat competitors, all kind of cooperate and get together to to be the watch world in in scare quotes uh as opposed to brand a brand b brand c uh the trade shows as we know them are are dead you know the trade shows are dead long live the trade shows right um for people who may not be familiar you know the the rough structure was sihh in january which was richemont uh basel world in march april it kind of moved around a little bit uh and that was basically everybody else uh, and then later in the year, we'd get releases here and there, you know, things like events like Dubai Watch Week uh, have come on the scene, less of a trade show, more of an industry event. But like, really, those two tent poles oriented the watch industry. Have I have I missed anything there? Any any other things that you think are important? No, I mean, I would say, uh, yeah, the trade shows are gone. Uh, a lot of trade shows are gone. You know, the first uh, the first Basel World was the 1917 Schweizer Ordnance. Uh, which was uh, a little bit more of a. I'm, I'm reaching deep back nice. into the uh, deep back into the archives, um, you know. But it was a little bit more of a general industrial trade show uh, in Switzerland. It gradually evolved into the watch and jewelry show that you know we knew and loved. And uh, wow, um, you know, uh, it's not just our industry. Uh, there's a a real question as to whether or not in-person trade shows, you know, now in retrospect. Um, you know, at the end of 2020, do we, I mean, do we need these things? We, I mean, we all miss them. I, I, I mean, I, I loved going to Basel World. I loved going to SIHH. You know, it was like, uh, you know, summer camp, except it was in the middle of winter, um, you know, for, uh, <laughs> for watch enthusiasts. And you got, you know, you, you know, you saw people that you would only see maybe once or twice a year, you, you know, you saw your colleagues and, you know, it's uh, it's hard to peel back the nostalgia that one feels for those things with what they were actually worth in terms of efficiency for communication. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point, Jack. I think you know the the trade shows have a business purpose, and then they also have a, a like you know I would say like a soft purpose, like a more intangible purpose which is all the stuff that happens when you're walking through the hallways and you run into people and and all of that kind of stuff. And for us as, as Hodinkee, it's also been a key like team building moment for us. You know, I, I remember in the early days of Hodinkee, like, you know, Will, Ben, and at the time Blake and me, you know, would share an apartment for a week. And like, these are guys, the first time we did this, I'd known them less than a year, you know, and we're like, 
sharing an apartment, cooking dinner for each other, like hanging out. And it really, it really, I think, became a big part of our, our team's ethos. And that's, that's stayed the same as we've grown. You know, I, I, the last Basel World we went to in 2019, I shared an apartment with Cole and James. And it was like, Cole had just started. And it was like a great way to get to know Cole and a great way to like integrate Cole into the team. Um, you know, I've had Joe Thompson literally come into uh, a living room wearing a like bathrobe over his pajamas uh, to wish all of us a good night and to tell us job well done for the day. Like those kind of things actually matter in a, in a real way. And and I'm with you, Jack. Like if, if the trade shows don't come back, like I'm genuinely going to miss that. I'm lucky I got to go to one. I'm like, I'm very, very excited and happy and grateful that I at least got one in. And then I can cross that off the bucket list, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's start. Let's look at what happened in 2020 for the shows. We'll just go chronologically through the year, see what happened, what didn't happen, what's going to happen next year, but differently. Um, so let's kick things off with really the only show that like fully happened, uh, and that's even sort of. Uh, is the LVMH Watch Week in Dubai, uh, which took place January 13th to 15th. Um, LVMH announced after last year that they were they were leaving, you know, Basel World to do their to do their own thing. Um, it was something I think people anticipated uh, happening kind of year after year, and it finally happened. Um, I was supposed to attend and ended up not, uh, and that's that's where I give the caveat that it sort of happened. Uh, I would say the show like 90% happened. Uh, there were a number of Americans who didn't go to the show uh, because it happened the week that the Trump administration was uh, attempting to start a war with Iran uh, and the UAE uh, was on the list of missile targets. So uh, chose not to go. Uh, was not great. But moving past that, uh, the LVMH brands, Hublot, Bulgari, Zenith, and Tag Heuer, had this amazing event and released some pretty great watches. I mean, I know Jack, you had quite a few favorite watches from the year that came out like what two weeks into the year. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there was a lot of great stuff released. Uh, you know, normally you like to see these things in person. I actually had my first in-person uh, meeting with a watch brand to look at a watch uh, yesterday. Uh, first time in in uh, I think ten months. First first time since March. And uh, wow. it was the whole thing was very, you know, surreal. It reminded me, you know, first of all, just how how energizing and how much fun it is to actually see these things in person instead of, you know, trying to imagine what they're like in person from press releases and from renderings. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, not not being in Dubai, uh, you know, for the launch of these pieces was it, it's it's tough. You know, I mean, uh, we everybody who's, uh, you know, on this call has seen enough watches and been to enough trade shows that you can kind of you can kind of imagine what they're like but you you, you really do need to see these things and uh that's a tough uh, to me that was the toughest thing about 2020 is that you just don't you don't you don't get to experience these things you know you get to you do, i mean even seeing uh, an amazing watch for five minutes in a meeting at a trade show is a thousand times better than trying to figure out what it looks and feels like from a press release it's interesting that that LVMH event just kind of squeaked in right before everything really shut down. And so it stands out as, as, as the big event that happened. And then in the time since it's kind of, it's been 
I would say more difficult than any time I would say in my career to really be able to weigh what, you know, what really matters in terms of watch releases, because they've kind of just been, there's just been with the exception of some, some virtual events where we saw um, a number of big brands kind of activate all at once, but uh, it's just been like a trickle, you know, of kind of this watch here, this watch there and not put. Well, and John, those virtual, those virtual events are, uh, they're, they're tricky, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, the brands are trying, but, uh, you know, you have the head of marketing for, you know, a major brand trying to introduce a watch by holding it up in front of a Zoom camera yeah. in a Zoom they're... meeting with, like, relatively low resolution. Yeah. And, you know, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's obviously not the same. Yeah. It's no really no substitute for, like, seeing, you know, a number of watches, as many as, 30 or 40 watches in person over the course of a day. And then, you know, sitting down with a little bit of reflection and, and saying, okay, what are the, what are the four most important watches that I need to write about today? Um, it, it just hasn't been possible. Yeah. And, and, and that's really, I mean, the, the thing you, you both mentioned about virtual trade shows and the, the difficulties of it bring up something interesting for the next couple months, which is that LVMH is doing this event again, but fully virtually they're, they're unable to do it in person. They can't do it in Europe. They can't do it in the U.S. Uh, they've chosen not to do it in Asia. Um, and and it'll be interesting to see if the event, by all accounts, it was a huge success last year. Everyone I spoke to at LVMH and retailers said it was awesome. That like sell in, sell out, the whole thing was just like great from a business standpoint. It'll be interesting to see if this virtual event is the same. Like, is it just us as the the journalists who are like, ah, I can't really see it in person. It's like not quite the same. Or I wonder if that'll affect the the more like retail focused uh, side of this as well. What what would pre prevent these brands from sending around? Like, you know, they have you can do trunk shows, regional trunk shows that can be controlled capacity and so forth. But how about I'm sure you've gotten some watches sent to you to check out and so forth. I mean, there's always yeah. a way to overcome these things, always. Yeah, there is. I mean, I would say this gets us right back to the the kind of institutional problems, which is like, you know, I'll leave the brand nameless. I'm sure Jack has these experiences and John has these experiences too. But like, I've heard multiple times at trade shows in the past where like, you're like, oh, hey, I heard you did this piece. Can I check it out? And they're like, oh, no, we have one non-functioning prototype mm -hmm. and it's with the sales team all day. And it literally was finished yesterday. Like somebody personally drove it from the factory to the yeah. show uh, so that we could show it. And it's like, you're right, Cole, it would be possible. But like, try to get a major watch brand to produce, I don't know, 50 to 100 pre-production samples to ship all over the world. Like, good good luck. Like, I, mean, I, I right. can't imagine that happening. I'm going to call some people after this. I'm going to make a few <laughs> phone calls. <laughs> How many times have you guys experienced like working with, uh, you know, uh, benefiting from the work of a really good publicist who will go to bat for you and say, let me go get that piece. And then they're able to get it for you for like five minutes. And so you take whatever photos you can, you know, make whatever impressions of it you can, but you have five minutes with this thing and then it's gone, you know? Well, and you're, you know, you're lucky to have the five minutes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the thing is, the thing is, uh, you know, at the trade shows for better or worse, you would, you would at least get five yeah. minutes. And, you know, at Basel world and at SIHH, uh, you know, you have, 10 meetings a day, 12 meetings a day for the first three days, but at least you get to see stuff. At least you get to handle stuff. You have an opportunity to try to set up, uh, you know, photo shoots, you know, for the, for the high level stuff. And this year, if you want to have any, like any hands on time at all, 
you have to talk to the publicist and they have to call it in and it has to be brought into, uh, you know, wherever it is you want to shoot it under COVID-19 restrictions. Like instead of it being an easy thing to do in five minutes to 15 minutes, it becomes an incredibly complicated thing to do that takes like three days of arranging. I mean, Stephen's been through this a million times with, you know, everything he and Tiffany have shot, you know, for us this year and she's, she's done amazing work. But, you know, uh, in the, for the trade shows, it was easy. You know, we'd have five guys out there with cameras who could shoot a decent five pictures of a watch, including a wrist shot. And now, um, you know, every single watch we want to shoot, it's it's like organizing, uh, you know, the Omaha Beach landings, uh, you know, on D-Day. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Good, yeah. good reference, I mean, Jack. <laughs> I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to share one detail, and then I do want to move on and, and talk about Basel and SIHH, like you mentioned, Jack. But... Uh, I had one brand where I had to sign a piece of paperwork that said I would not be putting the watch on my wrist or anyone else's wrist, and that I would only be handling the watch with gloves and a mask on. And if I violated that, the brand was then required to leave the watch in a special like detox safe uh, for two weeks uh, as their procedure so that like watch straps wouldn't be a disease vector. This was really early on. We still weren't like a hundred percent knowledgeable about like how this thing transmits. Uh, but like people took this seriously and it was an extremely huge hurdle for us to jump over, uh, just to like make things that otherwise, like you say, would have been like easy, easy peasy. I didn't see any, uh, wrist shots with gloves on or anything on the site, Steven. Uh, yeah, because we didn't shoot this watch on a wrist. <laughs> oh, I wasn't yeah, allowed, yeah, man. Right. Gloves only. Uh, all, right. all right. So, so let's let's leave LVMH there, and and I think LVMH is going to be a good case study because we'll it it will have been the last show before COVID, and then it'll be the first show where we get to see it again under COVID protocols. So I think you know we'll probably come back and chat more about this in like late January, early February. Um, because I think we'll have a better a better sense of like how one organization is handling the change, um, but it's already kicked off. I mean, all of these like really interesting questions we've talked about. Um, Basel World, I think, is is the next thing I want to talk about. Um, I'm going to lay out a quick timeline because Basel World uh, was a veritable roller coaster. I think is maybe the best way to put it. Um, better and nicer than the other words uh, I could use. Um, but basically the news started it big time on April 14th. I mean, yes, the 20, 2020 Basel world got canceled. We knew or postponed indefinitely. We knew that, that I don't even really think was like a surprise. Uh, April 14th, Rolex, Tudor, Patek, Chopard, and Chanel all exit. They announced that they're forming their own consortium. There's going to be some other brands involved and they're going to do their own show. Three days later, on April 17th, LVMH exits uh, fully. And again, they were doing their own show already, but they were still going to stay in and support Basel and whatever. No more. That's done. May 7th, Basel World cancels their 2021 show, uh, at which point everybody assumes Basel's dead, that it's just the show is done. It's not going to happen. They've canceled now two years, whatever. July 9th, my birthday, uh, stuff gets shaken up. Uh the Murdoch family announces that they're investing in MCH, which is the parent company, which also owns Art Basel, which, if we're being honest, is probably the bulk of the reason for the investment, not the Basel World show. Uh, super weird. Uh, and we can get into that. But 
Uh, that's announced on July 9th. July 23rd, Baselworld announces they're rebranding as Our Universe, H-O-U-R Universe, uh, and that there will be a show in 2021. So effectively, like, May 7th, it's canceled. July 23rd, it's back on, but with a new name and a new owner. Uh, and then September 30th, dates were set for Our Universe. It's happening in April. It, like, by all accounts, is basically a smaller Basel world with fewer brands and a lot more of, like, a consumer focus, uh, which Basel world was already trying to do. And that's where we're at now. So at the beginning of the year, we had Basel World, but brands were leaving. Its future was kind of uncertain. And over the course of basically like from April to September, so over the course of like five or six months, uh, the show died, was purchased, was rebranded, and new dates were set. Uh, pretty, pretty interesting, I guess is maybe the right word. What do you, what do you guys think? I am thinking that's a ballsy move to set it in April. Let's see if uh, they follow through with it. You know, I mean, that's a pretty aggressive thing, especially given the state of Switzerland. Yeah, April days. seems very close. I mean, it, obviously the vaccines are coming online and uh, we'll see how, how, how quickly or how slowly those are actually rolled out to people. But April does feel very close on the calendar. But I want to go back. That's for sure. I miss all the uh, camaraderie. Same. Uh, I, I wonder, Jack, what do you think a an Our Universe show looks like with no LVMH, no Swatch Group, no Rolex Tudor, no Paddock, no Chanel, and no Chopard? Uh, I mean, smaller? <laughs> Empty? Yeah. You know, um, the other thing is that, uh, okay, I, I understand the rebranding. I mean, Our Universe, like, I feel like there are way too many puns in uh, the watch world as it is. Um, I miss the name Basel world. Uh, you know, that event is not coming back as we all remember it. But at the same time, you know, the great thing about Basel world was it was the only, it was really the only thing that happened once a year where the entire Swiss watch industry, absent the brands who, you know, were uh, at SIHH, you know, the industry kind of came together and said, hey, this is the unique, this, here's a wonderful, unique cultural heritage of Switzerland, which is watchmaking, you know, and let's all support this. And the balkanization of the brands, I don't think has been good for the watch industry. Um, and I feel like, you know, the Swiss, uh, they never seem to miss an opportunity to miss an opportunity. <laughs> and to have, exactly. uh, to have a single unified I can't remember where I stole that quote from, but it had nothing to do with watches. I know that, um, you know, but, but the, the opportunity to have a, to have a sort of single unified voice that says, Hey, we are all Swiss watch brands, you know, everything from Chopard and Patek Philippe to, to so, you know, and, and the, you know, the Japanese brands, citizen group, uh, Seiko, Grand Seiko and everything in between, you know, just to have a place where the world got together once a year to celebrate watches was a wonderful thing. And I don't miss, Basel world per se, as much as I miss the fact that once a year, we all just got together and, you know, said, Hey, you know, you're, you're making watches in Japan. You're making watches in Germany. You're making watches in Switzerland. Watches are cool. We all love them. And let's, uh, you know, let, let's have an event that, uh, you know, acknowledges and celebrates what's fantastic about this crazy little world we live in. I, uh, I had an interesting thought here when, you know, I was kind of just, just now, um, you know, the World Fair or whatever was held in Long Island at one point, you know, the uh, 
there's like remnants of the world. Yeah, the giant globe in in Queens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. This kind of feels like, you know, the World Fair, everyone came together and it was grandiose and everyone celebrated everything, right? We don't really have World Fairs anymore. This could be what Basel World is. We just won't. It'll be fragmented and the sort of nostalgia for what once was will replace, you know. So let's see. But these shows sound, yeah, like totally a bunch of bifurcations. How, what, like now there was Expo 2010, which is supposedly the World Fair, but it was not. So I think Basel World will take the place of like the World Fair in the 60s. We'll look back very fondly on these, this, this, like that time. Hey, Steven. Uh, I'm curious yeah. about something. What's your like, what's your first memory of Basel World? Oh, what is my first Basel World memory? That's a really good question, Jack. Because that goes, um, that goes back a while. I think, uh, um, you know, maybe a lot of people who listen, I mean, people listen to the show, they like, they know that I've been to a million Basel Worlds. John's been going to them maybe longer than I have. But, uh, you know, you've been going to them, you know, forever also. Yeah, my first Basel World was Basel 2013. Uh, we stayed on Rheingestrasse, uh, right around the corner from the show. Um, it was Ben, Will, Blake Bettner and me in a three-bedroom apartment uh, that had a diver's, like a diving bell style, like diving helmet uh, hanging over the front door, which was super weird. You're kidding. Uh, That's very amazing. Basel. Do you have very a picture? Basel. I mean, kids, like, uh, is there, probably is there, somewhere. Is there yeah. a photo we can link do. up to in the show notes? I probably have a photo on my phone crazy. somewhere, but uh, yeah, we, uh, it was awesome. And like, you know, I, I remember getting there and like Ben had kind of prepped me and been like, all right, like, this is crazy. It's going to be totally nuts. Like, it's going to be overwhelming. And I was like, I've been like, I know what trade shows are like, I can do this, you know. Uh, and I remember walking through that front door on press day and just being like, holy shit. Like, I had never seen so many watches or so many people interested in watches in one place. Uh, and at the time, you know, we were pretty run and gun. And I remember we ran over to the Rolex booth before the little green shutters go up or green shades go up to reveal the new watches. And like standing there with everybody just like shaking, just like waiting to see what the new Rolex is going to be. Dude, that's uh, the thing. That's the thing I remember the most vividly about my first Basel world. I was like, holy shit, there are that many people who actually care about watches. Was 2013. What was mm-hmm. what was the big Rolex release? Was that the Platinum Daytona or was it something else? Uh, the big Rolex release, 2013. I'd have to double check. The Daytona was either 2013 or 2014 because I remember uh, Ben was like despondent uh, after the release. And he he's, was so pissed. he's since come around, and I know he likes that watch now. Uh, but I remember like Ben was expecting like a steel ceramic bezel Daytona, like, you know, what we got a couple years later. And I remember the window went up and he looked at it and then like walked around the booth trying to see if the thing he was looking for was somewhere else. Uh, And he was like legit. And and, like, I'm not talking out of turn here. He and I I think have even talked about this on the show before. But like, oh, dude, dude, we were all freaked out. He was he was in a bad mood for like two or three days. He was like upset (laughs) about this. Uh, And like people asked him about it. People would be like, are you are you okay?" And he'd be like, yeah, fucking Daytona, you know, like. And it was it was real. I'm like to be in a place for a couple days every year where this thing that, you know, the four of us do for a living and that presumably everybody who's listening to this enjoys. But like in the broader world is sort of weird and offbeat and like alien, you know, to be in a place where everyone is as into it as you or more uh, 
is a cool thing. It's a really special thing. And like, I can say that like some of my favorite Hodinkee memories are, are of the trade shows of that time that we, you know, uh, you know, on the on the business side, or like on the business by business, I mean like doing my job side of things. Uh, like when the System Fifty One came out, I somehow was able to talk Rosita, who ran uh, PR for Swatch in the U.S. at the time. Shout out to Rosita Wheeler. Uh, I was able to talk her into literally going to Mr. Hayek and getting the prototype off his wrist for me to shoot in a conference Incredible. room. It was the only. It was one mm. of two working examples they had. There was that one and one in a vitrine that they couldn't remove. It was like under lock and key. Uh, and I got, again, five minutes with the original System 51 the day it came out. And it was like, that felt huge. And it was so exciting. And it was like a time where I was like, I'm a part of like this industry in a meaningful way. And I just hope that whatever happens to our universe and the other shows, I hope that like people get to keep having those experiences, mm -hmm. whether they're journalists or Absolutely. retailers or end consumers. But I don't know. To me, the, the real value of the shows is how much they make you feel a part of this thing in a, in a yeah, real there's way. Never, there's so I, wanna maybe, ask, I wanna ask them while we, while, while we have them, like, uh, you know, Cole, you went to one Basel world and John, you've been to like a million Basel worlds. I'm curious, like, <laughs> like, like you guys, like what's your, what's your like big Basel world memory? I can't talk about it on Hoodie Radio. <laughs> no, okay. I'm totally kidding. I'm totally kidding. Um, we had to go I, pick him up at three in the morning. It wasn't pretty, Jack. Don't, exactly. don't worry about it. The three kings did a number on me, you know? Um, no, no. I think uh, very similar to what, I mean, Stephen, Stephen already captured it. So for me, as an outsider, you know, I was a Hoodie reader long before I was on the inside. So I followed it, followed it. It's kind of like uh, there is some halo around Basel Royal. This is this crazy thing. And I put it on my list of like things to do in life to see if I could swing it somehow. Like, could I go here just on my own? The answer is not really to begin with. You can't, you can't just walk in. I, I couldn't because I looked into it back in the day. No, that's true. You can't. Yeah. Um, and then when I got there, it was just like, whoa, this is just as crazy as I thought. And, and that kind of gobsmacked feeling I think is my, Biggest memory. And then also I would say the the little kind of in-between moments sitting around the table with James and Steven drinking whiskey and writing a shit ton and being on deadline and being stressed as hell, but also cranking out good work, like work I was proud of. And, uh, oh, and then meeting CEOs of these crazy brands and then them telling me that they've read something I've written, like, you know, a few months after I started, it was like, whoa, this is crazy. It's a hell of a so feeling. Yeah, I thank, loved it. Thank God that James knows where to get a good bottle of whiskey in Basel. <laughs> yeah, that helps. Don, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I the first one for me was just such a blur, and it was uh, now it was so long ago. It's hard, honestly, to to remember much. It was it would have been two thousand and uh, two thousand and six. It would have been uh, spring of two thousand and six. Would have been my first one. Uh, and really, I mean, I, I remember just kind of cramped accommodation, <laughs> cramped accommodations, staying on one of those hotel ships on the Rhine uh, is one thing that kind of jumps out. Um, just oh shit, you stayed on one of the ships. Yep, that's the first several years that I went. I, I stayed on the hotel ships on the Rhine. Um, uh, what else? Which were quite far from the show. Actually, you'd have to take a bus and all of that. Um, I remember. Uh, just walking around, um, this was would have been with IW, uh, the first publication I worked uh, with right out of college. Um, you know, just like going around to like, you know, I was, you know, young, youngest guy there, 
new guy at the publication um, going to all the smaller brands really to just see if they had anything interesting and getting as many press kits in English as I could. Uh, Hall 5 used to be where, where most of those brands were uh, in the original Basel World layout. Um, so that's something that definitely stands out. But then also, um, it probably wasn't my first year, but uh, sometime after, you know, being invited finally into the Rolex booth and having an appointment and sitting there and being like one of the first people in the world to see like the new Rolex releases was uh, kind of mind blowing. Um, and I can say the same thing about Paddock, like having a having a Patek Philippe appointment. Uh, you know, I, I can't remember if it would have actually been the first year, but you know, one of one of those first times going in there, seeing like Terry Stern just kind of like you know, shooting the breeze with one of his retailers or, or some, some journalist as I walked in and like knowing exactly who that person was and how important he is in our industry. Um, I mean, there was another time I was, I had an appointment in, um, this would have been early on as well. I had an appointment um, uh, with Breguet and like Nick Hayek Jr. just popped his head in to say hi. You know, it was just very quick, but it's like, you know, arguably the most powerful person in the watch industry just popping his head in to say hi. It was wild. And my, my other memory, um, you know, which, uh, which, which you brought up is of, of Terry's turn the year that the pilot watch came out, you know, the, the, the mm. much, the much maligned pilot watch that everybody hated. Uh, so we had our, uh, we had our appointment. You remember this, Stephen, we had, we had our oh, appointment yeah. and, uh, you know, we're, we're walking down to leave the Paddock Philippe booth and Terry Stern is walking, hmm. you know, up the stairs to go to another meeting. And I said, oh, Mr. Stern, that's, it's great to see you. Uh, so, uh, you know, the pilot watch is kind of controversial. And he looked at me, he looked really exhausted and he said, yes, yes. Uh, everybody who sees it says, oh, it's terrible. It's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, how could you possibly do such a thing? And before they leave, they say, uh, can you reserve one for me? <laughs> those are, those, those are definitely like peak Basel world moments. Like that is what Basel world is, is stuff like that. Um, well, I want I want to make sure we get some time to talk about watches and wonders, nay S I H H, uh, as as well here before we wrap. Um, I'm going to do a similar thing here, real quick, to what I did for Basel World. So, in October of 2019, S I H H announced that they were rebranding as Watches and Wonders. Watches and Wonders was a name they'd already been using for shows in Asia, shows in Miami. Um, but they were that was going to be the new name. So there would be Watches and Wonders Geneva, Watches and Wonders Miami, Watches and Wonders Shanghai, and they'd they'd be different events. Uh, February, February, late February, February twenty seventh, Watches and Wonders twenty twenty Geneva gets canceled. April twentieth, they announce it's going online five days later on the twenty fifth. So that's why uh, you know we got this huge huge batch of watches all released at the end of April. Uh, then over the summer, they announced that there would be a show in Shanghai in the fall uh, in September, uh, and it happened. It it went off. This was during the time when cases were extremely low in uh, in China, so they were able to do it. Uh, and then November 17th, they announced that uh, Watches and Wonders Geneva 2021 would be fully online. So yet another show moves fully digital. Um this was kind of like just another case. Again, over over the course of the year, we saw a major show had changes planned for 2020. Those changes didn't happen. They then changed plans again, and then those plans were forced to go digital. So it seems like we're establishing a bit of a pattern here. Um, and I wonder, like, Basel World is is one thing. SIHH is very different, you know, in in the ways that Jack and, and John have emphasized the, like, coming together nature of Basel World. SIHH and Watches and Wonders is is by its very nature 
exclusive. It's invite only. Um, it's not really open to the public in the way that Basel is. I mean, you couldn't just walk into Basel, but like you could get tickets. There, there were ways to make it work. Uh, SIHH is invite only. Everybody shows up in suits and ties. It's like very, uh, you know, there's hospitality. There's food and beverage around. Like it's it's really meant to be a, more like a corporate event, I would say. Um, and so I wonder if you guys have any thoughts on like how this change will impact Watches and Wonders maybe differently than Basel World, or if you think it's it's going to be kind of the same net effect in the end. I've never been, by the way. I've never been to SIHA or Watches and Wonders. <laughs> <laughs> I, sorry, sorry. I've always not looked at it like the one. G8 Summit versus uh, a UN Summit or something like that. But I've never been, so who knows? So I'll just hmm. I'll just sit this one out here. I mean, that's not a terrible analogy. No, not at all. Yeah, if the Basel World is like the General Assembly, this is uh, the G8. Um, SHH was the G8. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it'll be hard to say. I mean, it, I really, I'm as curious as anyone to see what an in-person Watches and Wonders uh, in Geneva will eventually look like when it happens, because I just, you know, I just don't know. Um, it's, uh, SIHH was always a very, very pleasant, um, show to attend. I mean, things, it was, uh, you know, while there were fewer brands, they were, uh, almost exclusively high end, or I would say exclusively high end brands. Um, and, um, you would just by virtue of the fact that it wasn't quite so crowded, you got a little bit more time with the watches. Um, and it was a little bit more, more geared toward, um, uh, providing an experience that was optimized for you to provide optimal coverage, if that makes sense. Um, yeah, I feel like people were either, you know, like watch journalists are either like Team SIHH or Team Basel World. Yeah, I mean, I feel like, you know, there's something about kind of the, the bootstrappy nature of like going to Basel World and staying in the Airbnb and, you know, eating a, a pretzel bread sandwich while you're trying to like, you know, look at your your calendar for your next appointment uh, in, a, in a crowded press room that was... Um, I mean, it was, it was, it's a, it was always a great experience and it was, um, a lot of fun. Um, but I always just thought that SIHH was a little bit, it uh, was an easier show to digest and an easier show to cover. All right. So, so with all of that in mind, I mean, we've got now LVMH is doing this thing in January virtually. Uh, we're going to have a virtual watches and wonders in April. As of now, it looks like the plan is for our universe to be both digital and in person. We'll see if that happens in April, uh, a lot could happen between now and then or not happen between now and then. Uh, and then we've got players like Swatch Group, Seiko Grand Seiko, uh, this consortium of Tudor Rolex, Paddock, Chopard and Chanel. There's still a lot undecided. So, you know, we can't really give people too much of a like, this is what 2021 is going to look like in watches. But I wonder from each of you, just to kind of like finish the year on a high note here, uh, what is something each of you hopes to see in 2021 from the industry like something macro that you want to see that either we didn't get this year or that we got that you want to see taken to another level something that was lost that could come back you know it's pretty pretty much an open-ended question here yeah i mean i miss the in-person trade shows i miss uh, you know the uh, the sort of summer camp aspect of them was was delightful uh, the team building aspect was delightful but to actually not to to, to not be able to see most of the uh, new pieces in person is uh, man that, that that makes life difficult. It's a, you know it's as if you're a wine reviewer 
and you have to, uh, you know, suddenly you can't taste the wine anymore. You have to review a wine based on tasting notes provided by uh, the manufacturer. And uh, man, you know, it's like, it's not the same. I think um, yeah, going forward, I will, not not the inverse of that, but sort of, I kind of like how we've digitally found solutions to problems that aren't really our choice. And I think in a way, this sort of proliferation of information dissemination in the watch world through Zoom or whatever is good. It can become more inclusive. It can allow more people to be involved. And uh, I am excited to see how we, or how this affects it going forward. Sure, I'll miss everything, but I only got one Basel in anyway. So whatever, you know. Um, but I think it'll be exciting to see the solutions that companies and media like us come up with to keep doing what we're doing. Yeah, I would I would echo uh, Cole's point. I, I think I'd, I'd love to see what you know. Obviously, COVID will come to an end. There will be an end to this. There will be will the vaccine will will be rolled out and we will return to normal. But I'm really interested to see what will remain of uh, the the virtual introductions that have kind of appeared uh, during this period and how you know what, what what will the lasting effects be of this uh, situation that was foisted upon us. Um, and I just hope though that there that out of all of this, you know, one show will emerge. It probably won't be anything like Basel world ever was, but I hope there will be something that will get, you know, more than half of the watch world to show up somewhere, Switzerland, wherever uh, it happens to be, where we can all get together and, uh, you know, clink glasses and um, chat and uh, enjoy, the, enjoy each other's company, you know, the, the, uh, the friends that we've made over the years and that we will make in the future. Yeah, you know, uh, I would like to believe that there's going to be a return to normal, but I don't think that there's a normal to return to at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I actually think, you know, Jack, to that point, I, I think we touched on it earlier, specifically with Basel World, about the the fragmentation of the watch industry and the fact that these these groups that formerly could like come together and work together toward a common goal, which was like make watches matter to the world. Um, you know, we kind of lost that. And and I'm hoping that we can maybe get some of that back. You know, I'm I'm hoping that some of the economic impacts and logistical impacts of of COVID can maybe shake these groups and these brands out out of that uh I think um hubristic sort of uh calling it a myth is not not the right word, but like to shake them out of their hubris and say like we are stronger together than we are separately. And like Worldwide, the, the like market penetration of luxury wristwatches is still pretty mm. small. Like, there's nothing but room for growth here. Uh, and if this is going to survive into the 21st century in a in a real meaningful way, like this can't be a brand A versus brand B every minute of every day situation. Like, sure, at the sales counter when you're deciding between watch A or watch B, like. Sure, those brands want to have the salespeople trained to promote their stuff. They want to make the best products. They want to have the best prices. They want to like, sure, I get that. That's market competition. It's real fine. But like once a year, come together and say like, hey, I can reach across the aisle and like, yes, we both make $4,500, 42-millimeter chronographs and we're competing against each other. But like we can also like shake hands and say that like we're in the same game here and it's better if we all win. Uh, and I, I'm hoping that some of that mentality comes back uh, and maybe even stronger than it was in the past. I, I, I really think, I, I truly believe 
that the way forward for watches in the 21st century is for watches as a category to push forward. Uh, and it's that, you know, rising tides raise all boats, yeah. you know, um, I think is, is much better than this, like, you know, <laughs> just speaking selfishly, if we have some kind of like BS virtual trade show to attend every week, we're not going to get anything done. And I think consumers will find it confusing and product rollouts being so haphazard and people not knowing when this is in market versus that's in market. Was this announced or can I go buy it? Like that bullshit just has to stop. Like 21st century consumers expect more than that and are too smart for that. And uh, I'm hoping the industry can kind of like pull together and find a new a new way forward for everybody that is better for everyone. You make a really good point, man. I mean, I, I, I remember, I remember, a, I remember a pre-COVID as this, the schedule was just becoming so hard to follow, sitting down and trying to map it out myself and thinking about maybe even like writing an article to help readers. But even in real time, as I was yeah. starting to write, like it was just evolving. Devolving. It, it, it became, it became impossible. Yeah. Became devolving, yeah, yeah. And you spend and you spend what forty to sixty hours a week eat, sleeping, and breathing watches. Imagine just being like somebody who is interested in this as a hobby and trying yeah. to follow it. Like, what a disaster for everyone. Like, yeah. I don't know. Well, guys, this has been really good. I really appreciate you talking through this with me. I know, like, finishing the year on trade show talk is kind of weird, but I I think this is actually kind of like a microcosm for everything strange that's happening in the industry right now. Oh, 100%. It's going to impact everyone and everything. So um, we'll see. I think it's a, it's an interesting year ahead. I think we've all voiced kind of what we hope hope to see. And we'll just keep checking in throughout the year and, and see what, what comes and what doesn't. Cole, I can't believe you never got to go to an SAHH. And I never will. It sucks. But it is what it is. I'm grateful for everything that I've been given in this world. Jack, should we just stage like a fake SIHH? Just take Cole to the Pal Expo Center, give him a glass of champagne, and tell him to write six introducing posts before lunch. Just wander, wander, wander around confused and be like, "I thought there was a booth here." <laughs> we'll do something. We'll do something in my apartment. I'll, uh, you know, I love. I'll it. buy some. Uh, I'll buy some. Ble- I'll buy some blinis and, cav- and uh, salmon caviar, and uh, we we can drink champagne at eleven o'clock in the morning. Perfect. Oh, I'll get my uh, suit dropped off at the dry cleaner next week, so I'm ready done. to go. Done. I'm done. Uh, Awesome. Thank you guys. This was awesome. I think this is a a super fun way to close things out. And uh, yeah, we'll see everybody in 2021. See you guys. Happy New Year, by the way. Happy holidays and happy New Year, everybody.